your Bibles for our Old Testament reading to Deuteronomy 3, page 202 of your Pew Bibles. In this chapter, we have the further conquest and division of the Transjordan, or the east side of Jordan, of the inheritance of Israel. We have new leadership appointed for the people of God, a succession in the government of the church and the state. And then we have, finally, Moses' request denied. Moses wanted to go into the land, and God told him no. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from Deuteronomy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Adrei. And the Lord said unto me, Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into thy hand. And thou shalt do unto him as thou didst unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we smote him until none was left to him remaining. And we took all his cities at that time, There was not a city which we took not from them, threescore cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Og, in Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, beside unwalled towns a great many. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city, but all the cattle, And the spoil of the cities we took for a prey to ourselves. And we took at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, the land that was on this side Jordan from the river Arnon unto Mount Hermon, which Hermon the Sidonians call Sirion, and the Amorites call it Shenir. All the cities of the plain and Gilead and all Bashan, unto Salkah and Adrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. And this land which we possessed at that time from Aroer, which is by the river Arnon and half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof gave I unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites. And the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, with all Bashan, which was called the land of giants. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the country of Argob unto the coasts of Geshurai and Maakathi, and called them after his own name, Bashan, Havoth, Jair, unto this day. And I gave Gilead unto Machir. And unto the Reubenites and unto the Gadites I gave from Gilead, even unto the river Arnon, half the valley, and the border even unto the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon. The plain also, and Jordan, and the coast thereof, from Chinnereth, even unto the sea of the plain, even the, sea, the salt sea, under Ashdod Pisgah eastward. And I commanded you at that time, saying, 
The Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it. You shall pass over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, all that are meet for the war, but your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know that ye have much cattle, shall abide in your cities which I have given you, until the Lord have given rest unto your brethren as well as unto you, and until they also possess the land which the Lord your God hath given them beyond Jordan. And then shall ye return every man unto his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Thine eyes have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto these two kings. So shall the Lord do unto all the kingdoms whither thou passest. Ye shall not fear them. For the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. And I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might? I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Get thee up into the top of Pisgah, and lift up thine eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward, and behold it with thine eyes, for thou shalt not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. So we abode in the valley over against Beth Peor. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, we have the conquest of Og, king of Bashan, and the seizing of his country. Notice the Lord's encouragement in verse 2. Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into thine hand. Notice here that God's promise is the basis of avoiding fearfulness. When we are confident that God has promised us something, then we must trust in that promise because his perfect love, we are taught, casts out fear. Verse 5, note that all the cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars. Was there matter to be afraid? Were there things to fear in the land of Bashan? Of course there were. Ruled by a giant, the land of Bashan was known as a fruitful and fertile land. You'll read of the bulls of Bashan. Very strong, very fertile land leads to strong animals. But these cities, you will notice, were high in their walls. How can we take these cities? How can we overcome the bars? But with what is impossible with man, note, is possible with God. God can do in his word of promise whatever he has purposed to do. Our duty is to believe him, to trust him, and therefore, as he said, fear him not. Note verse 6, they utterly destroyed the men, the women, and children of every city. God had appointed this to be the case, that they would destroy little children as well as older men. 
and therefore we must not judge it according to our mere human standards. These people were worthy of death. They were totally depraved, rebellious against God, rejected from his life, doing abominable idolatries and iniquities, and therefore they deserved everything that they got. We also note here that even children are totally depraved. God had them judged as well. Some people have the false notion that little children are innocent. The Bible does not teach that notion, and if it did, this would be a horrible crime for Israel to wipe out men, women, and children. But of course, they are not innocent, and therefore there was no crime in this when God called for their death. God in his mercy, though, afforded in verse 7 all the cattle and the spoil of the cities that they could take it for themselves. You'll notice on other occasions, God would not afford them this leisure, but because the land of Bashan was a goodly land, it was fertile, therefore God, in concession to them and out of mercy to them, said, you may keep all the spoils, all the cattle, so that you can continue working this land. Verse 11 Notice it says that only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnants of the giants. Now, this is not a reference to the Philistine giants, but to those giants on the east side of Jordan. That's why he says he's the only one that remains, though we know there were other giants in the land. Now, if you recall from last week, we looked at the Rephaims. These, in chapter 2, verse 20, were referred to as giants dwelt there in old time, and the Ammonites called them the Zamzumims. You remember that? The word giant in Hebrew, Rephaim, refers to those who are shades, those who are damned, those who are ghosts, or those who are giants, or perhaps a combination of those things. Now, the Ammonites called them Zamzumims, which means abominable rogues, thieves, robbers, and everyone feared them. Yet notice, when God overcame the power of these giants, of these Rephaims, of these damned, these shades, these giants, they could not stand before the Lord. Though they seem fearful to all men, though all men dread them, yet God is overcoming them. Verse 11 tells us that his bed was nine cubits in length and four cubits in the breadth of it. If we take the cubit of a man as roughly 18 inches, that means that his bed was possibly as much as 13 and a half or 14 feet long. That's a big bed. Now, normally beds are a little larger than the person who sleeps on them. But nonetheless, this man was tall. I exhort us then, let us trust God even in impossible circumstances. If we have God's promise... We must believe and act upon his promise and his commands, trusting his power to complete every good thing that he has said he will do. Now we see in Numbers 21, 33 through 35, that there is a brief and modest account of Og's overthrow. But here Moses gives a more expansive and detailed account of the overthrow of Og, in order to encourage the people as they go into the land, as we saw last week, look at all the other nations inheriting. Now God gives an extensive detail so that they can say, we can overcome the impossible. These high walls, these fenced cities, these giants of massive stature, God caused us to overcome them. Therefore, we can be encouraged when we go into the land of Canaan that we will inherit the possession that God has promised. 
And of course, verses 12 through 20, we have the distribution of these new conquests to the two and a half tribes with certain conditions. And then we have the encouragement of Joshua in 21 and 22. And finally, Moses' request. Notice here, in verse 14, there is Bashan Havoth Jair. Now, Bashan, of course, is the land that they're inheriting. And it means a smooth land or a prosperous. Things get smooth often because of fat. In fact, in the ancient world, if you wanted to have a smooth wall, you would put some form of fat in your lime, and that would cause it to be a smooth wall. So the land of Bashan is a fat land. As I mentioned, the theological word book of the Old Testament refers to Bashan as follows. The fertile country bounded by the Jabbok River on the south and the Sea of Galilee in the west, which is called Chenereth in our passage here. It's the Sea of Galilee. And then they say a line from Mount Hermon eastward on the north and Haran range on the east. Range animals and oak trees are subjects of figurative expressions. And the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32:14, references made to the rams of the breed of Bashan. And in Psalm 22:12, the strong bulls of Bashan are a figure of the vicious enemies of the Messiah. So Bashan was a fertile land, big trees, big animals, big men under the blessing of God, even to those heathens. And yet in this case, Jair overcomes it. Havoth means the villages. So Bashan, the smooth or fertile land, the villages of that land, and Jair names it after his name. One who enlightens is what Jair means. He says in verse 15, I gave Gilead unto Machir, that is the eldest son of Manasseh, and he conquered Gilead and was granted it. Verse 17, as I mentioned, Chinnereth to the sea of the plain, even the salt sea. In other words, Chinnereth being the sea of Galilee and the salt sea also being known as the Dead Sea. So that eastern part of the Jordan Valley running down into the salt sea or the Dead Sea. Verse 17 also refers us to Ashdod or Ashdoth Pisgah eastward. This word Ashdoth means the hillsides of Pisgah. Pisgah is where Moses will see the promised land. These are the hillsides leading up, or we might say the foothills leading up to that mountain peak or collection of mountains. Verse 18, and, and I commanded you, notice this is Moses speaking to the two and a half tribes, and I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it. Ye shall pass over. Now, it's interesting. When God commands things, when he gives the Ten Commandments, for example, what does he do before he gets to the Ten Commandments? Well, he gives explanation of things. He gives reasons of things. He gives facts or events that are very significant and have a bearing and relationship to the commandments themselves. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. I am sovereign over you. I have chosen you for my people. I have redeemed you and called you my people so that I can be a sinful people's God. I've forgiven all of your sins. And also I brought you up out of bondage. Then he says the commandments. Notice here. He commanded him or commanded them at that time saying, what? The Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it. This is very significant. 
you have been granted freely by God's grace an inheritance. That's what he's saying. Then he says, ye shall pass over. In light, in other words, of the great things that God has done for you, here is your duty. Here is the commandment. And so we see throughout the Bible that God will give us basis for our obedience. Now, he could just say, I am God, and there is no other, and therefore you will do everything I say. But God, in his grace, repeats and reiterates his mercy, his promise, his grace, the good things he's done for us. And then he says, therefore, obey my voice. And we must take this as part of the commandment. The promise is the basis for the precept. The gospel is the basis for the law. God's giving us a new heart is the basis of our cultivating and circumcising our own hearts and being no longer stiff-necked. God has done good for us. Let us return with gratitude, not just thanksgiving, but as the old Puritan used to say, thanks living, living in gratitude and obedience to God, not merely saying, thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Verse 20, they were to pass over until they also possess the land which the Lord your God hath given them beyond Jordan, and then shall ye return every man unto his possession. These are related terms. They will possess their land. You will return to your possession. One is a noun, possession, and the other is a verb, possess, till they possess their land. But they are related. And they point us to one thing, that this was an inheritance. God was their father, and he had stipulated, you are my heirs, I have chosen you, I have adopted you, and here is the great possession that I've given to you, the great inheritance I'm passing on to you. Some people believe that this was a covenant of works that God gave to Israel. You can have the land as payment for your labor. No. They had the land out of God's free grace, out of his disposition. A testament literally is where one person pushes their will through on another. A covenant is where two wills come together and decide and determine what are the terms, and each party has to fulfill their side, in which case the other side is obliged because the first party kept their part of the contract. That's a covenant. This is no such thing. This is God's testament. We can call it a covenant of grace. That's another way of saying a testament, that God freely gives us these good things, and then, in light of the good he's done to us, of course he requires obedience. Not in a covenantal way, but as dear children. They were given an inheritance. They were given a possession. So then, verses 21 and 22, Joshua is encouraged. God is looking to the future of his church, not just the present of his church. He wants a succession plan in place. Moses then says, I commanded Joshua at that time. Moses was not merely concerned with his days. Oh, I'm spending my children's inheritance. There are bumper stickers that say that. Parents who hate their children are wasting away the substance that they should pass on to their children. Moses does not think this way. He thinks of future generations of God's people. He's concerned that there will be a succession for the church and the state. He encourages Joshua that the Lord will do as he did to Og, and as he did to Sihon, so he will do to every kingdom. 
There is future success in the kingdom of God. And part of the encouragement is the prior success of the kingdom of God. God has been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. You shall not fear them, he tells Joshua, for the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. Fear is a passion by which we expect some evil to come upon us in the future. Just as hope is a passion by which we set our expectation on some good yet to be in the future, fear says, no, there is bad in my future. Fear is natural in our fallen condition. But notice, God tells us, regulate your passions, regulate your fears based off of my promise. You must trust that I will do all that I've said and all these kingdoms will be yours. You see that? Therefore, do not fear, he says. We also must regulate our passions by God's promise. Do we have fears concerning our lives or the world to come? Regulate them according to God's promise. What has God said? That he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Moses then, verses 23 through 29, requests that he may go to Canaan. God denies his request. And then he provides a substitute who will go in for Moses, even Joshua. Verse 23 says, I besought the Lord. This is where someone asks someone to be merciful, to be gracious to me. That's what he's doing. Bowing down and asking for grace and mercy. Notice verse 24. He's very sincere. Thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth? Can you and I pray like this? These are beautiful prayers, aren't they? Sincerely given. Is God obliged to answer Moses in the affirmative? No. That's why he says, I pray thee, if it please you, God, I'm begging you, let me go over and see this good land. But did he have good grounds for this prayer? Did the scripture give him hope to build this prayer upon a promise from God? Because that's the basis of our prayers. No. What had God told Moses? You're not going in. And Moses might have thought, well, God is merciful. Who knows whether he'll be gracious and let me go in. But what does God say about those who are in authority? God says that they will be judged more strictly. Moses was such an authority. And therefore, God said, no, I will be sanctified in those who come near me, Moses. You have not sanctified my name. You will not go in. Let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me. Of this matter, God will not hear all of our prayers. God will not answer all of our prayers. Even the godliest of men is but a man, though the meekest among men, yet still he is liable to provoke God to wrath. The Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. Moses was the object of God's anger. Was Was he damned? No, of course not. His sins were forgiven. And yet God as a father will have anger against his children, will chastise them and judge them should they go astray, and especially those as Moses in authority. God doesn't want to hear any more about this. But instead of you, Moses, going over, I have plans for the future of my church 
Verse 28, charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. Now this word, we've seen this actually in our series on friendship. Joshua must be encouraged. This word is a very interesting word. It means to strengthen, to harden, to become strong or courageous, to be or grow firm, to be resolute, or even to become sore. How do you become sore? Because you're working hard, aren't you? Lifting heavy weights, doing things your body's not accustomed to. Exercise causes us to be sore, to be strengthened, to be hardened and firmed up in our bodies. Notice then that we must in some measure be hardened in our spirits if we're to do God's business. If we're to do valiantly for God, we can't be wimps, in other words. We can't be chickens. Oh, the sky is falling. There's a lion in the streets. Put on your mask. Take your shot. Stay away from grandma. This is the attitude of those who are weak and flabby. Those who are not hardened, who have no courage, who are not strengthened. But if we're to serve God, he says, you must be strong. So go to Joshua and harden him up a bit. Strengthen him for the task I've called him to. And so we must not be wimps in the faith. Be men, he says, act you or quit you like men. And be strong, he says, and let all that you do be done in love. And thus far the explanation of Deuteronomy 3.